Welcome to All Fired Up. I'm Louise, your host, and this is the podcast where we talk all things anti-diet. Has diet culture got you in a fit of rage? Is the injustice of the beauty ideal getting your knickers in a twist? Does Fitspo make you want a Spitspo? Are you ready to hurl if you hear one more weight loss tip? Are you ready to be mad, loud, and proud? Well, you've come to the right place. Let's get all fired up. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another awesome episode of All Fired Up. I'm so excited to be here, and I hope you're excited to listen to this week's episode. And if you're loving All Fired Up, please don't forget to go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review. Give us a five-star review so we get heaps and heaps more attention and this anti-diet message gets out there to the masses. And if you haven't subscribed, make sure you do so you don't miss out on an episode when it drops. And a free resource for everybody, our ebook, which is called Everything You've Been Told About Weight Loss is Bullshit, written by me and Fiona Willer, the absolutely amazing research ninja and anti-diet dietitian. In this ebook, we are busting the top 10 myths that are floating around about quote-unquote obesity, about weight loss, about weight science, and why really a non-diet approach is the best way for people to look after themselves. This is free. It's at untrapped.com.au. Please go there, download it, share it with friends and family, give it to colleagues, post it up everywhere you can because I really want this message to get out there because I definitely think we're poised right on the edge of a paradigm shift into more and more people seeing the damage that diet culture is doing and this endless focus on weight loss is doing and everybody's getting very ready for something completely different. So go to untrapped.com.au and download our lovely ebook. And remember, if you are struggling with your relationship with food, your body, movement, or just living in diet culture in general, you are not alone. This podcast is brought to you by Untrapped, which is our incredible online program, which I designed alongside 12 other fierce health professionals in this space. Incredible people like Sarah Harry and Fiona Sutherland from Body Positive Australia. I can't even name everybody because there's just too many, but this seriously is an incredible program. We've been running for almost a year now, which I seriously, it's just gone so fast and we're growing and the community is growing. And what I'm seeing is pretty special because I'm seeing that not only are people getting better, in terms of letting go of disordered eating and thinking that they always have to be on a diet, connecting a lot more intuitively with their bodies and with movement. But I'm noticing that people are getting fired up against diet culture and taking a stand against injustice and doing things that possibly before doing the Untrapped program, they wouldn't have done. Things like pushing back against bullying from health professionals like uh, doctors or specialists who are just trying to throw the old just lose weight solution at them for everything and demanding better healthcare. And you know what? It's because of our community and banding together against all of this misinformation that people are feeling empowered enough to do it. So if you are feeling alone, please come and join us and do the incredible program. Join our wonderful community at untrapped.com.au.
So thank you absolutely everybody because I continue to get uh, deluged every week with your rants and your outrage about diet culture topics and I want more. So if you have something you want to rant about, perhaps here on the podcast or you want me to find someone to rant, send me an email to louise at untrapped.com.au and I will get completely fired up about it. I am deeply honoured to bring you this week's guest. Her name is Magret Fletcher, and she is a registered dietitian, a diabetes educator, and seriously, a pioneer of mindful eating. She's one of the mothers of the movement, if you like. She's responsible for pioneering this approach and really bringing awareness of mindful eating practices into dietetics and into the health professions generally. She actually helped to create the Centre for Mindful Eating and she is the author of this just amazing book called Eat What You Love, Love What You Eat with Diabetes. And she's also authored a lot of professional resources and educational stuff for health professionals. So obviously, I've given away the topic a little. This week, we are talking all about diabetes and how it is perceived within diet culture. And if anyone out there has been told by their doctor that because you're diabetic, you must go on a diet, you must go low carb, or if your insulin resistance is increasing and you definitely need to lose weight, please listen to this episode because this is right up Magret's alley. And I want the whole world to know that if you are suffering with diabetes or if you have high blood sugar, weight loss dieting is not going to help you. It's going to get you into trouble. There's a really troublingly high level, high statistic, high number of people with diabetes who are suffering from disordered eating. And you know what? I'm not bloody surprised because diabetes is so often labeled as a weight problem with a weight solution. So Magret is here to really challenge a lot of the assumptions and bullshit that's flying around about diabetes, insulin resistance, and weight loss. And this is just an incredible conversation and I think incredibly useful. So without further ado, I give you me and the wonderful Magret. So Magret, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. <laughs> what is it that's firing you up? Well, we were laughing about this earlier, but when I hear people with diabetes tell me that weight loss cures diabetes, that definitely, that fires me up. I try to be polite, but it's a, <laughs> big, it's a big frustration. Yeah. You work a lot with people with diabetes. This is your area of expertise, right? It is. It's actually all I work with. I don't work with anybody else. I only work with people with elevations in their blood sugars. And I've been doing that for 25 years. Okay. So it sounds like you might have kind of an idea of what you're talking about. <laughs> and so why do so many people believe that weight loss will cure diabetes, do you think? Well, I think the popular media wants us to believe that type 2 diabetes in particular is an easy disease. And so they've gone down this shame blame route and it just really gets me so frustrated. Diabetes is a very, very complex disease. Mm -hmm. If it was easy, we would have fixed it. We would have solved, we would have gotten a cure, but it's not. And Dr. DeFranzo talks about eight core defects for type 2 diabetes. And these really have nothing to do with weight. These mm. are defects in your kidney reabsorbing glucose at a higher rate or your muscle cells not being able to uptake glucose. These are changes in our brain. These are changes in hormones like incretin and insulin production, beta cells, alpha cells. These are very, very complex things. And 
there's just no possible way that something as simple as weight loss is going to cure diabetes. Mm, mm. Yeah, but I guess that having that simple message and one that kind of blames the individual is such a familiar theme in diet culture. It is. And I definitely think that that statement is a reflection of diet culture because ultimately when people say weight loss cures diabetes, they go, weight loss isn't a behavior, it's an outcome. Mm. It's not a behavior. So what exactly are you going to do when you do weight loss? What is it? What are the behaviors that you do? And that Mm. opens up and starts unpacking a much richer more meaningful conversation when I talk with people. Yeah, yeah. We often overlook that idea of health behaviors and how useful they are because we're always looking at that outcome of weight reduction. Right. And one of the huge behaviors that I think a lot of people don't understand is the role of stress in overall blood sugar management. And so I have lots of people come in and they tell me, I'm so worried about eating or I'm afraid to eat Mm. carbohydrates unknowing that that is in fact causing stress and making it harder for them to manage their blood sugars. So it really is important for us to understand diabetes is a very complex process. Mm -hmm. And it's not just what we do. It's also how we think and how we feel and how we're coping with our very complex, busy, rushed lives. Yeah, yeah. It's so important, isn't it, to talk about the complexity of diabetes. And I wonder if if you can talk about what is diabetes? Like what happens to people's bodies when we get diabetes? Sure. So diabetes is a condition where the body can't bring nutrition into the cells. That's mm-hmm. the simplest way to think about it. Now, when we think about nutrition, if we break that down a little bit more, say you were eating an apple and you chew it up, it becomes applesauce in your mouth. That makes sense, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that applesauce will travel into your stomach and nothing magical has happened as that applesauce hits your stomach. It's still basically applesauce with some acid. Mm -hmm. That makes sense too. Yeah. But then it moves into our intestinal tract and that is digestion. And that's where the applesauce is going to change. Applesauce or apples are going to change from an apple into glucose. If you put peanut butter or cheese with it, it would break down that cheese, which is a protein, into an amino acid. And there's also fat in cheese, so it would break that down into a fatty acid. So Mm -hmm. all the foods that we eat get broken down into either glucose, amino acids, or fatty acids. There's really no other possibility for them to be anything but that. Mm, So now we don't have apples floating around our bloodstream. We have glucose, (laughs) amino acids, and fatty acids floating around our bloodstream. And those components are meant to nourish our body. They're meant to nourish our cells. So we have to move those components from the bloodstream into the cell. And the the mechanism that happens is we need the hormone insulin to move glucose from the bloodstream into the cell. Mm -hmm. Now, insulin's a funny hormone. It's made in the pancreas. And when we're diagnosed with diabetes, we lose about half of our body's ability to make insulin. Wow. Right. And Mm. that that doesn't come back. So even if you lost a lot of weight, your body's ability 
to make insulin doesn't reappear. That doesn't self-generate. Mm-hmm. So once that's happened, that's just going to happen. That's just going to happen. Mm. And everybody's insulin production declines as they age. That's a normal part of aging. Mm. But genetically, some of us lose our ability to produce insulin at a faster rate, or we never actually had a lot of insulin production to begin with. Meaning you might have made more insulin than I did because my family has diabetes. So my insulin production is going to decline you know, it's going to be smaller compared to yours. You might have more insulin than I do. Right. So it's quite heavily genetically influenced. It really is. So type 2 diabetes is predominantly a genetic condition that's passed down. Mm -hmm. That's interesting, isn't it? Because we get this message from diet culture that diabetes happens because you put on weight or diabetes happens because you don't eat a good enough diet and that makes you put on weight and that causes diabetes. But what you're saying is that actually it's really a lot down to your genetic history. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. So thank you so much for repeating that and clarifying that. (laughs) Yeah. Can you talk a bit about what might switch it on in terms, is Mm. it primarily aging that would switch it on? Well, there's a lot of things. So if you can think about insulin like a knife, we already talked about how big the knife is. So Mm -hmm. some people make more insulin, they have a bigger knife. Other people make less insulin, they have a smaller knife. Mm -hmm. But we all know that knives can get dull. Mm -hmm. And so there are things that happen that dull our knife. And the big thing that happens is we get older and our knife will naturally become dull. Mm. And many people, as we become older, aren't as active as they were. That can dull our knife. Many of us go through hormonal changes, and that can change our size, and it can also dull our knife. We get on medication. There are certain medications that you know we take that can dull our knife. Oh, what kinds of medications? Well, using myself as an example, I have asthma. Yeah. And when I have an asthma attack, I have to take a medication called prednisone. And that can really aggravate my blood sugar. So when I have the choice of breathing or not breathing, I choose breathing. (laughs) Good choice. Thank you. I support it myself. So does all of my doctors, but it may aggravate my blood sugars to go up. Right. Right. That's it dulls my insulin knife. Yeah. Yeah. So there's many factors that can go into dulling your knife, not just, uh, I mean, why is this conception so strong that weight gain leads to type two diabetes? Okay. So my personal belief is it sells products. Mm -hmm. So fear sells products. So that's my personal belief. My other thought process is that people They don't understand diabetes, so they simplify it to the point of inaccuracy. It's a complex disease with many, many parts. So we talked about medication dulling the knife. But if I'm having an asthma attack, Lou, am I Mm. exercising? No, no, hell no. (laughs) (laughs) I'm really not. And if I'm having an asthma attack and it's hard for me to breathe, do you think I'm going to be choosing foods that require a lot of chewing like salad? I think you'd just be reaching for what's easiest. 
Yes. And what might clear that airway very quickly. So health conditions can, they can have multiple effects on our blood sugars. Mm -hmm. So when I'm having an asthma attack, I'm not exercising. I'm probably not eating salads. Mm -hmm. I'm probably just trying to get foods in me that clear that airway, that don't block it because I'm having a hard time breathing. Mm -hmm. And so it's not just one thing, but many things that are impacting my overall blood sugars, they're impacting my insulin resistance. They're impacting my ability for self-care. Yeah. That's such a lovely and human way of understanding this. What is the difference between insulin resistance and diabetes? Yeah. So type two diabetes is a complex disease and it's a combination of three different things. So it's partly how much insulin your body makes how resistant you are to that insulin. And as I like to think about that, how dull is your insulin knife? Mm. And the last part of it is how much work are you asking your smaller, duller knife to do? Mm -hmm. That's about food and eating right there. Oh, okay. Yeah. So many people will say, I'm watching calories. I've dieted my whole life. Mm. I've never thought to look at how many carbohydrates I'm eating at one time. Mm, and there's something in that. So this is about, you're talking about the quality or the variety of the food that you're eating? Yeah, I would say I'm talking about the three macronutrients. Uh, so we talked about them earlier, carbohydrates, protein, and fat. And that in diabetes care, we are trying to change the balance of those macronutrients so they're a little bit more even. So we're not trying to eat a high-carb diet. We're not trying to eat a low-carb diet. We're trying to eat a diet that's balanced. Mm. And by eating a diet that's balanced in carbohydrates, fats, and protein, we actually decrease the amount of work we're asking our smaller, duller knife to do. Right. Okay. So we're helping to support our bodies with insulin and absorption by looking at the balance of macronutrients. Exactly. Mm. And that's moving ourselves away from afraid of calories. We're letting go of that. We're letting go of that diet culture to, I am here to provide nutrition to my body. Mm. Oh, that's such a nice reframe. It's so much more empowering than what we get told by diet culture. And one thing, I don't know if it's happening over there in the US, but there's a real trend here in Australia for people diagnosed with diabetes to go on low-carb diets. And there's this idea that a low-carb diet will cure diabetes as well. So diabetes, by definition, is a chronic illness. That means there is no cure. We manage diabetes, we don't cure it. Oh, that's interesting, isn't it? Because we don't get that message either. We get this idea that it can somehow be cured, often with you know weight loss. <laughs> but what you're saying is that it's never cured. It's only managed. No, it's only managed. Yeah, that's a really important point. It is a really important point. And it can be well managed if the macronutrient balance is looked after? Well, I think if we get a macronutrient balance that benefits our body and it provides our body with the nutrient needs it has. So mm. when I turn around and say, this is what my body needs and I'm managing that, I am nourishing my body. I'm not restricting my intake. I'm nourishing my body. 
So diet culture says restrict and you're healthier. Non-diet culture said nourish your body and you're healthier. Yeah, it's diabolical, isn't it? Diet culture, diabetes care, sounds like it would make things worse. (laughs) I think it really does. (laughs) Because your body, you know, a body that's already, you know, having some trouble is then being restricted and everything gets overlooked in preference to weight loss. Whereas in the non-diet culture way of looking at things, it's all about supporting and nourishing. It is all about supporting and nourishing. And it's more than just our cells in our body. It's also about nourishing us as a being, our spirit, you know, our whole being. And having somebody who's restricted, who's always starving themselves and vigilant to not eat and to not do and to not have, Mm. that is starving the spirit. Oh, that's such a beautiful way of putting it. When our spirits are starved, our stress levels shoot up. And as you said, that makes the whole thing worse. It dulls the insulin knife. So now our blood sugars rise and we're on this treadmill, this cycle of restriction. I can't eat it. It stresses me out. My blood sugars go crazy. Then I overeat. That stresses me out. My blood sugars go crazy. I restrict my intake. That stresses me out. My blood sugars go crazy. Yeah, you've wonderfully described what happened. You know, sometimes I see clients and they've been doing the whole non-diet approach and they're loving it. And then they'll get diagnosed with something like diabetes and be told by their health providers that they must start dieting. And it's exactly as you described. There's, There's an immense amount of stress. There's all of this worry about the meal plan and what they're supposed to be doing. And people usually binge pretty soon after that. And they're back to kind of square one. So it's a really scary diagnosis, I think, for people. And it can really rock the boat, especially if someone's been working in a non-diet way and then gets this diagnosis and kind of thinks that they have to go back to diet culture. Do you see that as well? I do. I do. And there's new research that's really showing that about 40% of people with type 2 diabetes are struggling in that cycle. Wow. Right. That's almost almost half of people uh, stuck in cycles of disordered eating after a diagnosis. Isn't that awful? And what is the solution that people are offered? Try harder. That's what they're told. Yeah, be be better, like try to lose more weight. Try not to binge. <laughs> try not to be stressed. <laughs> try to cope better. Try to just do it, even though, you know, most people can't do it, regardless of diabetes status. We really can't do it if we're told that weight is healthy. So if the connection is all about what you weight, you cannot be successful. You cannot be successful at all. Because weight drives diet thinking, it drives diet culture. It is focusing on something that doesn't matter. What matters is you, the person. Mm. What matters is the behaviors providing nourishing. That's what matters. That's where health is. Oh, that's so beautifully put. When people come to see you, are their minds blown? (laughs) (laughs) I. I'm very fortunate. I've worked in the same place for just about 20 years and I have many of the same clients for those 20 years. So I think when people come, if they enjoy me, they stay. And so I have a lot of lovely friends that I visit with a couple times a year. (laughs) 
Oh, wow. Of course, people would love you. And so how do you, how do you start taking care of someone who's been newly diagnosed? Like what would be a starting point with them? Right. So I think just what we've done right now is really a big part of where I begin is just at the basics, just understanding nutrition, because there's so much misinformation perpetuated by the diet culture, perpetuated by this billion dollar industry that is trying to sell products. Mm. Now, once we kind of dust off that you know, we pull the curtain back and we see the man behind the curtain who's trying to manipulate us, then that's where I think my work ends and your work and the program that you're offering really begins because we all know that health at every size is like diabetes, very, very complex. And it takes a lot of work to really kind of wrap our heads around how eroding diet culture is, how eroding it is to our self-esteem, to how we view ourselves, our intersexual sexuality. And that's where programs like yours really can help people in between seeing their provider. So I always like to say there's 365 days in the year. You might see your provider two, four times. You might see me two, four times a year. What are we doing the rest of the time? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's such a well-made point that diet culture disempowers people and a diagnosis of diabetes within diet culture really disempowers people. And yes, so in Untrapped, I've had several people join and talk about joining or inquire about joining, but they're scared and they're scared because they have a diagnosis like diabetes and they're saying, well, I don't know if I can really do the non-diet approach and let go of dieting and food rules because... I have this condition. I kind of need food rules. But what you're saying is that the two can work really well together. Well, I believe that the non-diet approach is a sustainable approach to food and eating. Mm. It's a, an approach that talks about providing nutrition. Yeah. I'm not doing this to get thin. I'm doing this to nourish my body. Yeah. That's a, yeah, it's such a nice thing. I'm doing this to help my body operate, given the kind of pressures it's under because of this insulin thing. Yes. So I see you and I say, ah, you know, Lou, I really want to do this non-diet thing. But I noticed that when I ate a bagel for breakfast, my blood sugars really went high. Mm. They went through. And that's where the non-diet approach would say, well, what are your options? And we gently explore what are your options? It isn't saying you can't have a bagel. It's saying, what are your options? How do you want to manage this? Because we're bright and able people. Our (laughs) clients are bright and able people. We can solve problems. We can think through the bagel. We can think through the bagel. (laughs) We can. We can. And just pausing and moving out of diet culture, which says, I can't eat the bagel. Bagels are bad. Mm. And turning around and saying, well, what are our options? Mm-hmm. How can I make this bagel to... work for me? <laughs> I love that. How can I make this bagel work for me? Work bagel. You are going to work for me. <laughs> you are mine. <laughs> you are mine, bagel. I got you and you're going to work for me. Yeah. And that's what we do. That's what a non-diet approach does. It says, how am I going to make this food fit into my life? Because mm. I'm in charge. 
Mm. And what might be some solutions from that? So if you love a certain food, but you know it's going to spike your blood sugar, for example, what kinds of things can you introduce or explore? Sure. So you might like the bagel might be one of those things. Sometimes people, I'll ask them, I'll say, well, how do you feel about eating less? And they might say, yeah, that's a yay. Or they might say, yeah, I don't really want to do that. I go, okay. Is there a lower carb bagel you'd be willing to try? And they might say, yay or nay. And I go, okay. So how do you want to manage this? This is a food you know spikes your blood sugars. And they go, mm, I might not eat it as often. I go, okay. You've got some options. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you are so, committing heresy there by saying it's okay to eat food <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> that might spike your blood sugar. Because people are so scared to do that, Like even though they tend to do it. Mm-hmm. But to actually kind of give yourself an empowered decision to do that sometimes without guilt is awesome. Because you're going to. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes, like what I've noticed is that by really acknowledging that sometimes you are going to do stuff that's going to spike your blood sugar or it might trigger your IBS or, you know, all kinds of other things that can happen. Sometimes that's just going to happen and you're a a grown-up and if you really want to do that, then it's within your power and control to do that. It's not a crime. It's not a crime. And it's like a, it's a non-perfectionistic way of looking at food. Like you, like you were saying earlier, it's a sustainable relationship with food. Like any relationship, there's going to be different phases. I totally think that when people are empowered with their food choices, they genuinely want to feel pretty good from the nourishment that they're giving their bodies. And sort of coming back to what does make me feel good means that you naturally get that balance that you've been talking about. Do you Mm -hmm. find that? Absolutely. I do. And I find that when people get off the blood sugar roller coaster, that's that restriction, overeating, restriction, binging cycle that we talked about earlier, and their blood sugar stabilize, they can start really tuning in and realizing what foods feel good in their body. Mm, Isn't that lovely? And it's surprising I think for people sometimes to recognize, actually, I feel really good when I eat like this. And I've never done that before. <laughs> and I think I'm going to keep it because it feels good rather than I think I'm going to keep it because someone's told me to. Right. And you can expand that to, I feel really good when I move my body like this. Yeah. And I feel really good if I cope with this really horrible boss or this really stressful situation. and. I'm using these coping tools versus my other coping tools, which didn't actually make me feel better afterwards. And sometimes those other less effective coping tools are food or alcohol or just watching lots of TV or whatever. But we have coping tools that are helpful. They are effective. And we have coping tools that are, they really don't make a situation better. Yeah, there are things that you might have learned to do from the diet cycle because I think a lot of those things that you're talking about like maybe binge eating particularly can happen as an emotional coping response which is driven by restriction so Mm -hmm. it's an old one and it can be a hard one to let go but yeah so weight neutral diabetes care is about finding new coping strategies that genuinely make you feel good and are less based on that avoidance stuff 
Absolutely. And just also recognizing that many people, and I'm only, I speak for myself, but you know, sometimes we don't always have great teachers in our lives. And so I grew up in a family where you know, the way to cope with stress was to work really hard. So Mm. I know how to be a workaholic. Mm. I don't know how to relax. (laughs) And so when we talk about stress, that makes our insulin resistance higher. It dulls our insulin knife. So learning how to relax, and I really mean learning how to relax, how to just let go, that was very helpful for me. And it took me a lot. Like I've been meditating for 20 plus years Mm. because nobody told me how to relax. And many times as we peel away diet culture, as we peel that away, we realize, you know what? I never learned these other lessons. So not only do we want to peel back diet culture, but we really want to be with people in programs learning about effective healthy coping. Mm. And that isn't perfect coping. It's healthy, effective coping. And it's not about manipulating your food. No. Gosh, how often do we hear that a really central part of diabetes management is stress management? Like we just don't hear that. (laughs) So we need to say it louder Yeah, because stress drives insulin resistance. Yeah. And the wonderful part about that is that there's so many effective ways to reduce stress physiologically, like you're talking about meditation and we can teach people relaxation strategies and people can also just sort of find out for themselves what reduces my stress, what makes me feel relaxed. And that's going to be different to everybody. And it's it's an accessible coping skill that everyone can develop. It is. And it is. And it's funny because my my patients will come in and they'll say, so you want me to read a book? I'm like, yeah, if that's how you cope, if that's, that relaxes you. They're like, I love reading. I yeah. thought I was here to like not eat carbs. I'm like, no, we're here. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was here to not eat carbs. Right. So read a book. I had a gentleman. He, he was very funny. So true story. So I asked him, I said, well, what helps you relax? He goes, golfing. I go, well, you you can't always like, you know, go play nine holes, you know, in the middle of the day. He goes, I could hold my golf clubs. <laughs> and, you know, if that works for you, you know, go play them out. So That's awesome. That, it, that was it. So we start with these little tiny things. And he goes, you know, I felt a little silly at work, but he goes, you know what? It worked. He goes, I take a couple practice putts and it was good. And then all of a sudden I realized, you know, people also wanted to hold my golf clubs and pretty soon golfing in the hallway became kind of the norm. Oh, that's um, so funny. <laughs> as we embrace who we are authentically, those solutions, those answers come to us. And so maybe it's reading a book. Maybe it's going to the driving range after work. Maybe it's taking a walk. Maybe it's calling a friend. Maybe it's journaling. Maybe it's meditation. Maybe it's coloring. I have, I'm a closet colorer. I love coloring. Me too. I love it. And I remember being a little shy about coloring because it was before it was Vogue. And (laughs) And I was coloring and a, a, this woman, I didn't know her particularly well. She goes, I love to color too. Find out that she's a, a circuit judge. And I'm like, you know, 
I feel like I'm in good company here. If a judge, you know, for the Massachusetts Circuit Court turns around and says, I really love coloring too. I'm thinking, it's not a kid thing. But if you hate coloring, don't choose coloring. Yeah, there's no kind of um, rule book to say this is a way of reducing stress. It's very individual and just yeah, like golf clubs or colouring, it's going to be different for everyone, but it's important to find your thing. I wondered like what you think, because getting a diagnosis of diabetes, it's a very heavily judged diagnosis. And I really think that people feel ashamed when they get this diagnosis, like it's their fault and it's their poor choices that has led to this diagnosis. And I wonder what your thought is on how you know working on reducing the shame and the self-blame and the self-judgment that can happen when you get this diagnosis how how that's going to impact on reducing stress and improving the management of it i would like to back up a little bit and say what you just described to me is diet culture yeah and so it's so familiar you know we were turning around we saying gosh i got diabetes it sounds so much like diet culture yeah The thing that I've been living in and practicing for 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense to me that clients default back into diet culture. Yeah. And it makes sense to me that clients default back into food. Totally. Because it's familiar. Yeah. And people are also really scared because when you get this scary diagnosis of diabetes and the message is you can't have food anymore, <laughs> the, all of that deprivation eating is going to switch on. Exactly. Mm. Mm. So here we have this situation, which is familiar and we think, well, this is what I've done before. Not that it worked, but this is what I've done before. So I'm going to do it again. Yeah. So I really want to come at diabetes from a place of empathy. It makes sense to me that you want to manipulate food and eating. It makes sense to me that we want to manipulate our appearance. That makes sense. Mm. I understand the desire. And I'm here to say long-term, let's find a different way. Yeah. Let's find a way to nourish our body. Let's let go of diet culture. Let's let go of that kind of seemingly shame, blame, guilt-ridden culture around diabetes. Let's let that go. Mm. And let's start walking and embracing this nourishing, empowering, self-discovery, imperfect way of change. Because change is imperfect. It is about discovery. And if we knew exactly how to fix things, no one would innovate anything. Wow. You are almost making a diagnosis of diabetes sound like an awesome invitation to start looking after yourself in a non-diet way. I think it is. I think it's an awesome invitation to look at self-care from a non-diet way. Yeah. Oh, it's beautiful. So, because there's a lot of fear about approaching diabetes from a weight neutral perspective, but there is a lot of evidence, right, in the research to show that people do really well from this. So, the evidence around non dieting, I think, is very strong for me, but yeah. I look at it from that frame. Mm. And 
I am working really hard to start having people challenge the tenets of diabetes care, which are sometimes built on restrictive eating and often are built on restrictive eating. And I'm going to come back from that place of empathy because a hundred years ago, before the invention or just when insulin was invented, the first insulin was terrible insulin. It's not like the insulins we have now. This was awful stuff. It just wasn't effective. It wasn't predictable. It was really expensive. It was brand new. We didn't know how to dose it. We gave it to people by, you know, like a tube. It was just awful. (laughs) So it was just, a, it was a terrible thing to have diabetes in the, you know, the 30s. Like that mm. was an awful experience. So it, I have so much empathy for everyone who says, well, just don't eat carbs because this awful experience will be a little bit better. And I'm like, that seems like a great plan. <laughs> but it's not, it's not the 1930s. Yeah. You know, it's, we've got really a much better understanding about diabetes we have much better medication. We have a much better approach. We have better tools. I mean, I started in diabetes care just when a glucometer came out. And trust me, the two and a half gallons of blood you needed to make that thing work, like Mm. now it's 0.3 micrograms. I mean, it's tiny. Wow. That's such a huge difference. It is. It's a huge difference. So diabetes care has evolved and so has... so does our approach to diabetes care. We need to evolve too. As educators, as consumers, we need to turn around and say, wait a second, my lifespan isn't to 40 years old or 50 years old. I'm going to live until I'm 80 or 90. I want to make those years vibrant. And eating a restrictive diet and torturing myself emotionally is not going to achieve that goal. Yeah. I am here to empower myself. I'm going to be an adult. I'm going to take charge of the situation and I'm going to learn about diabetes care. And Mm. I am not going to fall victim to a bunch of people selling me products. And they're going to do that by making me scared because that's not going to keep me interested in this. Fear fear makes people disconnect. Yeah. Yeah. And it disempowers people from caring for their own bodies. That's why I love the non-diet approach because it's, it empowers people to be in their bodies. And like you're talking about the curiosity and exploring what feels good. It's so much more empowering than doing stuff because of fear and shame. Right. When we look at that research, so going back, how much research is there? We're having emerging research that says really A1C control is the key. And we're separating that out from weight. We're really seeing there is no evidence. And when I say no evidence, I mean zero (laughs) evidence that shows that weight loss is a a sustainable outcome. So people can lose weight. You can lose 20 pounds and that's fine. Mm -hmm. But can you keep it off? Yeah. And so it's really important to understand that having diabetes causes weight gain. Yeah. And so when we are able to maintain our weight, when we're able to not even focus on our weight, but really nourish our body and move our body. And I really want to stress that the non-diet approach is not about sitting on the couch and not moving. That is not what we're talking about. Yeah. is talking about be engaging and health promoting behaviors, but not focusing on a weight. And that research is present. We have 
tons of research that says you engage in health promoting behaviors, which are eating a nutrient dense diet, mm-hmm. exercising, taking your meds, managing your stress, you know, moving your body in joyful ways, getting enough sleep, getting mm-hmm. enough sleep. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. So important. Yeah. And that makes the care of chronic conditions, not just diabetes, but a lot of other kinds of things much better. And we see that people live longer, are just sort of happier (laughs) if we do that stuff as well. Exactly. And so many people who live in a larger body don't see the doctor. In the United States, we have a lot of initiatives around why people aren't accessing care. And I know you know the reason. Mm. And it's because Mm. of weight stigma and weight bias and shame around body size. And that is a huge barrier for us to be healthy. Yeah, it is a huge problem that when we're in a larger body, we don't want to go and see health providers because we feel like we're going to get fat shamed. And the reality is it can happen. It does happen. So it's not a unfounded fear. But I always try to encourage people to find, you know, doctor shop, go find someone who will respectfully look after you and stick up for the body that you're in. But it's hard, you know, it really is hard to constantly get that message that the problem is your body and that you need to focus on weight loss in order to deserve good health care. Yeah. Everything you said is so hard for me. Yeah. That whole piece is so hard. And I really hope, and I'm very blessed. I work with great providers that I would say rarely engage in that kind of behavior because we've been together for 20 years. And and I say to them, don't do that. That's harmful. Mm. That's not kind. That's not a nice thing to do. Mm. And they might look at me inquisitively and say, why are you saying that? I'm trying to help my patient. And I go, but you're hurting them. That's Mm. not a good thing. Mm. And so we need to be around people that support us. And I agree with you 100%. If your provider is not able to do that, if they're not able to see you as a whole person as you are right now, keep mm. looking. Yeah, yeah. We can vote with our feet <laughs> and leave and make complaints. And I think the more people stand up collectively for better health care for people in larger bodies, the quicker we can see change. But yeah, there's still a lot of work to do. But thank God there's people like you doing so much for this area. Well, thank you. (laughs) And like you who are helping us in so many ways between our appointments, which I think that's where the real learning happens. I think that's where the real work is. You know, we check in with our provider and we might get a checkup, but the real work is in between the appointments. Yeah. And you can trust yourself to do that work outside of diet culture. Yeah. Absolutely. What a wonderful conversation. You know, there's been so many requests for us to talk about diabetes and insulin, and I couldn't think of anyone else on the planet that I wanted to talk to apart from you, (laughs) because you've got so much knowledge and so much experience. So just thank you for everything that you do. And I know that you're making a change in educating the health providers. So thank you. No, you're very welcome. And take good care of yourself. Thank you. Same to you.
Gosh, isn't she just fabulous and inspiring and wonderful? Thank you so much, Magrette, for coming on the show and talking just so much sense about diabetes care and the non-diet approach. So as I said in the intro, Magrette's got this fabulous book. It's called Eat What You Love, Love What You Eat with Diabetes. And I strongly encourage anyone with insulin resistance or diabetes who's confused about how to look after themselves to get a hold of this book because you can take such good care of yourself without going on a diet, without the low-carb bullshit. And to find out more about Magrette, she can be found at magrette.com. And I'll just spell out the name for you because it's a little different than it sounds. It's M-E-G-R-E-T-T-E.com. I'm feeling all warm and fuzzy and inspired after that, but I am looking forward to next episode of All Fired Up where I return to a completely fiery state. It's a very exciting guest that I have for you next time and I'm not going to say another word. So I look forward to bringing you a big steaming pile of diet culture bullshit next time. And in the meantime, look after yourselves, everybody. And remember, trust no one. Think critically push back against diet culture. Untrap from the crap. 